Let's turn to Ezekiel 39. Ezekiel chapter 39. Now, never is chapter 39 separated from 38. Usually, uh, uh, in, in most cases, you know, you don't really separate um, chapters. Uh, there's a flow to the Word of God, of course. But sometimes one chapter means something and then another event takes place. Chapter 30 and 39 is all about the same events, so these never get separated. And we've been going through a number of weeks, both in chapter 38 and now concluding chapter 39. So if you didn't get the first few weeks in chapter 38, you can uh, sign up for the CDs to listen to those or get them on, on either the website or the app, and uh, the studies should be already there, I think. All right, I might be telling you something, and they're like about 20 chapters behind. I don't know. Maybe, hopefully not. They're all caught up. But in chapter 39, as we're concluding now, God has been making himself known to the leader and instigator of certain nations that have come against Israel. Now, I say have come as if it's already happened, hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. But it will happen in the very near future. And we go back to chapter 38. There's a list of nations there. All of them, in fact, are in place in not only the Middle East, but actually north of the Middle East, north of the area of Turkey, which is uh, the area of Togarma and most of Magog, uh, that is mentioned there. Of course, there's Iran, and, which is Persia, and Libya is also mentioned, as well as uh, Gog or Rosh, which is uh, possibly Russia. Not as if Russia is in the battle, but as the one who instigates and leads and supplies. We learned a couple of weeks ago that the name Gog is, is actually one who supplies or one who provides uh, the means by which uh, they can go out and attack. So all of that is still speculative in a way because it hasn't happened yet, yet we're getting so close to seeing that happen. And one of the reasons is because of Ezekiel 37, which is, of course, the chapter dealing with the resurrection of the dry bones uh, into the nation of Israel, that is today modern Israel. Out of the ashes of the Holocaust, Israel is now back in the land according to God's will and God's desires for his people. So with all of that, now the Lord has, has made it very clear here to the prophet that, uh, that he is going to bring judgment heavily upon the armies that are invading Israel. And all of that we've already deal, dealt with from chapter 39, verses 1 down to verse 22. Verse 23, as we conclude this section, let's read this passage and we'll kind of tie it all together. It says, And the heathen shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they trespassed against me, therefore hid I my face from them, and gave them into the hand of their enemies, so fell they all by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions have I done unto them 
and hid my face from them. Now, as I mentioned last week, and let me just kind of interject here very quickly, but as I mentioned last week, the Lord is making it very clear to these armies that he is not ineffective for Israel. In fact, he is bringing judgment upon his own people because of their sin. So it isn't as if God isn't effective or that God isn't powerful enough to protect his people. The fact of the matter is he's telling the heathen nations, listen, I'm judging them. I'm judging them. In some cases, I'm using you to judge them. But because of your invasion against them and the very heart in which you've come against them, I'm going to judge you. That's basically what we're seeing here in these two chapters. So he goes on and he says, according to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions have I done unto them and hid my face from them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel and will be jealous for my holy name. Remember this one thing that we learned in the book of Daniel. There is a, there is a, uh, a prescribed time for Israel to, to go through tribulation. A prescribed time of 490 years that God was going to judge them for their sins of disobedience and rebellion and for their sins of, 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 uh, of disobeying the Sabbath law concerning the land. Now that we can go back and look at all of those little details, but the, the point is, so far they have, they have already uh, covered 483 years of that judgment. There's only seven years left, and they haven't happened yet. Again, that's Daniel chapter 9. There is this space between that 60, <sighs> so, so many years, the 69th year, and then the, the 70th year, which is a, a group of 70, uh, or I should say a group of seven years. So that seven years hasn't yet happened, but when it begins, that is what we call the day of the Lord. That is what we call the great or the tribulation period, or as some say, the great tribulation period. Yet we see now in verse 25 that God says, I'm going to bring the captivity of Jacob and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel and will be jealous for my holy name. And after that, they have borne my shame and all their trespasses whereby they have trespassed against me when they dwell safely in their land and none made them afraid. I'm coming back to all of this, so don't worry. Now, when I have brought them again from the people and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations, then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them unto their own land and have left none of them any more there. Neither will I hide my face any more from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord. Now, one of the questions that we are going to deal with this evening is the timing of this invasion that we've been studying in Ezekiel 38 and 39, which can be called the Gog-Magog invasion. Gog, G-O-G, and Magog, M-A-G-O-G. Gog is the, is the leader, and Magog is, is one of the lands one of the nations or groups of nations that are coming against Israel. So we're looking, we need to kind of get a, an idea, because it hasn't happened yet, but an idea of when this invasion is going to take place. And as we conclude our time in these passages of Scripture, I pray that we have a better understanding of God's purposes 
in accomplishing his plans for the land and people of Israel in the latter days, that we would have a better understanding of God's purposes in the prophecies that we have been studying, uh, not just in Ezekiel, but even before that in Revelation, in um, uh, Daniel and, and uh, the, some of the minor prophets. We're going to come back to the minor prophets after Ezekiel as well. But that is never an easy task. It is never an easy task to, to study these purposes and plans. But much of that involves not only the rest of the world, but especially those nations expressly called out as Israel's enemies and a nation that should have prominence in latter-day events but appears to be canceled out of any mention whatsoever. And I, of course, speak of, of America, of the United States of America. They should have prominence, but from the scriptures we find out that they really will not have when this war begins. Now we studied that, we did three weeks about the United States back in Ezekiel 38, so again, when you get a chance, get, get some of these CDs or listen to it on, on the website. But I want to pick up where we, where we left off last time, and that is that the heathen nations were to come to an understanding that all the sufferings that the House of Israel has, has had to endure down through the ages has been primarily due to their sins and their iniquities, their disobedience, their rebelliousness, their transgressions, their trespasses against God and against his commandments. And so when we come to verse 21, uh, 23, I want to add verse 21 and 22 to this because this is the chastisement of Israel explained to the nations. The chastisement of Israel explained to the nations. Verse 21 says, And I will set my glory among the heathen. So just go back to verse 21. I will set my glory among the heathen or among the nations, the, na the word heathen, goyim, or the nations, and all the heathen or nations shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid upon them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day and forward. And the heathen shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they trespassed against me. You see, one of the ideas that nations have, at least in the time of, of, of Ezekiel and before that, was that uh, nations would battle with other nations and if one nation beat another nation, then that nation's God beat their other nation's gods, you know. And so it was always about, you know, having their gods exalted, so to speak. And the Lord is kind of saying to them here, he says, no, I don't want you to think that you've just defeated me because you can't defeat me. I'm, I'm the God above all gods. What you have to understand is that Israel went into captivity because of their sin, because of their iniquity. Because as he goes on to say, they trespassed against me, therefore hid I my face from them and gave them into the hand of their enemies. So fell they all by the sword, according to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions have I done unto them and hid my face from them. I've allowed this to happen to them. So I'm just giving you fair warning. This is Charlie's interpretation. 
I'm just giving you a fair warning that, you know, you think you've beaten me, you, haven't, you can't beat me, and you want to come try, don't, because <laughs> you're not going to win. But think about that for just a moment. How when we ourselves surrender to the mighty hand of God, and remember how loving God's hand is. Remember how good his hand is upon those who love him. But even when we go astray, he places his gentle hand of, of chastisement, of correction upon us. And sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's painful. But it should always be awakening. The Spirit of God moves in such a way that he brings conviction to our hearts, not condemnation. Condemnation is something that is saved for the enemies of God, for those who have rejected God. But those who love God, God cares for. You can read in the book of Proverbs and in the book of uh, Hebrews where it's quoted in the book of Proverbs, how God disciplines his own children because he loves them. Now, this is, this is a massive chastisement here because it's all of Israel. And yet he, he loves all his people. But he has to chastise them. He has to correct them. So that when they open their eyes, they'll see him and not their enemies. So as I pointed out last time, there will be many Jews who will come to know that, that God is the Lord because of this battle. That's... That's verse 22. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day and forward. From that day. That's very specific. That day of the battle. That day when God defeats the enemies of Israel. They will know that I am the Lord. So the chastisement and the judgment of the nation of Israel which began when the Lord put them into captivity in Babylon ultimately will find its fulfillment as its relationship with the Lord will be settled in the midst of this invasion. Now think for a moment about the Lord's reasons for judging nations in particular and the nation of Israel. Well, the nations in general, but the nation of Israel in particular. You know, when you summarize all the judgments prophesied, all of them prophesied upon the nations and those pertaining to Israel. We have to ask a very important question. Does the United States of America deserve to be judged? Now I bring them up again because we realize that for the last generation, and the first full generation of, of, the, of modern Israel's existence since 1948, America has been the closest friend to Israel. America has been, has been the strongest ally to Israel. And if Israel is at the center of Bible prophecy, and if Israel is, at, is the apple of God's eye, and the very closest friend of Israel, this country here, is somehow not even a factor anymore. Why would that be? Now again, I talked about this for three weeks back in chapter 38. But it begs us to, to ask this question. 
Does America deserve to be judged? Now you look at this nation in its condition today, the divisiveness in this nation. No one wants to say it, but we're going through a civil war today in this country. And not just about race, not just about uh, gender, not just about politics. The most important division right now is the division that is spiritual in this country. Where are those who truly love God? There's a thin line. Because there are those who say they love God, but there are those who truly love God. Of course, there are a lot more that don't even want to know God. But it's, but it's something that destroy, destroys a nation. Think about Jesus' conversation, you know, with the scribes and the Pharisees. What he said to them. about a divided house not being able to stand. Well, if that's true politically, how much more true is that spiritually? When there is either darkness or light. See, there's nothing in between. There's either darkness or there's light. Let me say it this way, darkness or light, because I don't want these people on this side thinking I'm just talking about them as darkness and this is light. So darkness and light, okay? But that's the division here. It's the spiritual division. And when you go through the prophecies of, of the Old Testament, when you go through the prophets, you go through the apostles, and you go to the book of Revelation, and, and you touch upon the prophetic issues in the New Testament, it all comes down to that very same thing. And we've talked about it many times, light and darkness. So as a nation, we have forgotten and forsaken the Lord. We have forgotten him and forsaken him. As a nation, we've turned against God's commandments. We turn against God's commandments, then we make certain laws to allow the acceptance of things that are abominations to God in this nation, like abortion. And again, I don't want to repeat myself because I know I've said this already a number of times. As a nation, we've transgressed in a major way against what the Lord said was evil and wrong. I want you to remember something that, we, that, that uh, you find in Isaiah 5, verses 20 through 23. I think most of us are familiar with this statement. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. That, that's, our, that's our society today. That's our society today. When people could put up signs, like, like I saw just this week on the news, that uh, there was a sign, you know, about, ha about having more dead cops, you know. I don't like the word cops, but I work with police officers, so I, you know, I, I kind of take umbrance to that term, but, but there's signs out there, you know, about more dead cops. 
I'm not trying to say here that every, every police officer is, is perfect and, you know, but they are here in our society to help us, to protect us, to serve us. Same with our military. That's calling evil good and good evil. And the evil that's out there that people are calling good is destroying the fiber and foundation of the nation. I'm not going into specifics, but consider again, verse 20, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. Now notice this, that put darkness for light and light for darkness. Now that's what we just talked about. That put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. So it is this, this influence. You know, there's a fight between two opposing sides, light, darkness, for the influencing of others. If you can influence the righteous to drop their righteousness, then who wins? And yet God called us to be an influence to the world. What's the influence that we're to be? Two things that Jesus mentioned in Matthew chapter 5. Light and salt. Light and salt. Because both of them have an influence. We are called to be an influence to this society. Part of the problem in the church today is that we have hidden behind all kinds of dogmas and doctrines and traditions, but we have not gotten out there to tell people about Jesus Christ. That he's coming soon, and that this world as we know it has an end, and that end is, is near. How they need to get right with God. So that's where we are. Just in tying it in, 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 in some way to what we've talked about before, but the judgment that Israel has gone through is some of the judgment that we're going through today. The natural disasters. I'm, pr I'm praying for this Hurricane Irma, man, to take a, a swift turn. I've got family in that area of Florida and North Carolina and Virginia, all along the East Coast. Sure, I, I don't want that hurricane to hit, but I didn't want Harvey to hit either. Did anybody, we didn't pray for Harvey to hit, did we? We didn't, <laughs> that'd be kind of weird. But why are these things allowed? Because it wakes us up. And it needs to wake the church up. I mentioned this last week. Harvey hit Corpus Christi first. Well, what a significant thing that was, hitting the body of Christ. That's what the name Corpus Christi means, the body of Christ. Time to wake up the church. Well, we've got to go on because we've got a long way to go. And 10 o'clock comes awfully quick. No, I'm just kidding. Verse 25, let's, let's go to this next section, the Lord's plan. His mercy will regather Israel. And, and don't, don't squint at that because you're saying, well, I thought they were already regathered. Okay, well, hold that, hold that thought. 
Verse 25, therefore thus saith the Lord God, now, I now will I bring again. Now notice, will I bring again. Got the word again there? Got it? Yeah. Now uh, will I bring again to the captivity of Jacob, which means taking the captivity of Jacob out of its captivity, and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel, and will be jealous for my holy name. After that they have borne their shame, and all their trespasses whereby they have trespassed against me, when they dwelt safely in their land, and none made them afraid. Now that's a clue. We talked a little bit about that in chapter 38, so we'll come back to that. Verse 27, when I have brought them again from the people and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations, then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them unto their own land and have left none of them anymore there. God is not, in fact, repeating himself as if to say, He's telling us again about chapter 38, I'm sorry, 37, no. So you might be asking the question then, hasn't Israel already been gathered and brought back into the land? Well, that is certainly true. And while it's certainly true, there is a clear regathering mentioned by the Lord here because he says, now will I bring again. I have brought them again from the people. Let's remember from our text that the Lord is going to have mercy on the whole house of Israel. The very restoring and protecting of Israel is going to exalt God's mercies. The Lord is jealous and zealous concerning his holy reputation and his restoration of Israel will clearly reveal the depth of his compassion for his people. This can certainly apply to us as well. God's mercy and compassion are clearly seen every time he restores us into fellowship. Every time he restores us into fellowship with himself and protects us from the enemies in this world. There are obviously things that are going to happen where some Jews have not come back into the land. Others may have gotten back away from the land and God is going to regather them again. That's certainly a major possibility. But if we apply these things to us, then just remember that his compassion is seen every time he restores us. Every time. When he restores us, he's gathering us back. Because when we were here in fellowship with him, then something happens in our life and then we're like way over here. We're over here, you know. He has to, he has to regather us. And when he restores us, he's regathering us. Think of Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 15. It says, and it shall come to pass after that. I have plucked them out. I will return. And have compassion on them and will bring them again. Notice, again. Every man to his heritage and every man to his land. And of course, the picture there is as if we, we again see them going into Babylon. They go into Babylon, they were in their land, then they were taken out of their land. So what does he do? He puts them there for 70 years, and what does he do? After 70 years, he brings them back into the land. So this is not a repeat of that. This is a new regathering. 
Why? Because the context is in this Gog-Magog war. So he's talking about the time that is yet to come. Lamentations, uh, which is the Lamentations of Jeremiah, the little book right after Jeremiah, verse 22 and verse 23, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Thank God for that. Thank God that, if, that, that when you take a little step out into the, you know, and I'm not, I am not encouraging you to take that step out, off the road. Okay? You got to hear first. I'm not encouraging you to. But if you do, which sometimes we do, if you kind of did that, you know, if, if, if any of us were God, they'd take that step out and boom, you know, landmine. Right? Because we're, 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 we're judgmental. That's the way we are sometimes. There are some people, I've talked, I've talked to some people, if I was God, hijo, thank the Lord we're not, you know. You go kill people, man. You remember J James and John? I mean, the sons of thunder, man. They were telling Jesus, call down fire from heaven, Lord. <laughs> wow. Fire from heaven. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. Can you imagine if, if James and John, after they brought their mother to Jesus to tell, you know, to kind of help her influence Jesus to make them sit at the left and right hand of him in the kingdom, that he says, oh, l listen, mom, you know what? Because he, they did that, boom, little piles of ashes right on the side. Right? Is that, is that God? Is that Jesus? <laughs> no, his compassions never fail. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Micah 7, verses 18 and 19. Who is a God like unto thee that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. Our God delights in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Anyone, anybody want to go back into the depths of the sea to get your sins back? I don't think so. They're good to where they are. Let's just leave them there. When you look at verse 26 of our text now, going back to Ezekiel 39, there's a statement made that pertains to attitude more than reality. And I'll explain that. Verse 26, after that they have borne their shame and all their trespasses whereby they have trespassed against me, when they dwelt safely in their land and none made them afraid. Now the question is, is that today? Is that today? That they dwell safely in the land and none of them are afraid. Is that today? Now don't answer, it's making you think. Well, for all intents and purposes, it is today. For all intents and purposes, it is today. But as I said, it's all about attitude. It's about attitude. The reality we touched upon was back in chapter 38, verse 11. So if you go back a page for just a moment. And remember that this is how the invasion is set up. 
Now, if you go back to verse 9, which you don't have to do that, but I'm just, I'm going to say that God is talking to Gog and Magog, and he says, Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm, thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands and many people with thee. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall come to pass at, at the same time shall, shall things come into thy mind. Thou shalt think an evil thought, that's the thought of invasion. And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages, unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. Now what's interesting here, as I said back a few weeks ago, there are, there are walls there, there are bars, there are gates, there are checkpoints. Nevertheless, in the understanding of the people, in the understanding of the military, in the understanding of the governmental leadership of Israel, they have worked so hard to keep and maintain a high level of security and safety today. That's one reason why we're always being invited back to the land of Israel after we've gone. They say, we hope you come back next year. And you know, every time we've gone, we've always wanted to go back. Even in times of, of trouble, we've been there in times of trouble. The land is safe. I oftentimes say, I'm, I feel safer over there than over here. I don't like to go out into the freeways and the streets. Whew. Now this is the way some people drive, I think, but anyway. We always feel safe there in Israel. Thankfully, God's hand is on us, and that's a good reason to feel safe. But also, the restoration and regathering of Israel once again in the land will allow God's people to forget their shame. This is an important point. When they are brought back into the land, regathered, they forget their shame. They're humbled, but you forget your shame. Why? Because God has taken it and forgiven you of it giving them an assurance of forgiveness and cleansing. So in verse 27, let's go on. It says, when I have brought them again from the people and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations, then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen or the nations. But I have gathered them unto their own land and have left none of them any more there. The Lord is going to demonstrate his holiness through Israel by destroying the wicked alliance led by Gog, demonstrating his holiness and hatred of sin. So everyone will know that the Lord's holy nature stands strongly opposed to wickedness of every kind. Wickedness of every kind, and they will know that the Lord alone is the only living and true God. And that's, a, that's another qualifier here that, that is so important for us to understand about God. He is going to make it very clear that there is no other God but Him. There's only one God. So when we arrive at verse 29, God's Spirit being poured out, you all might think, well, we're almost done, right? No, that we're just halfway through. So we need to deal with this one verse here to tie all the loose ends together. It says in verse 29, Neither will I hide my face anymore from them, 
For I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. I mentioned last time that those who hold to the view that the Holy Spirit is poured out at the end of the tribulation period, in other words, that only at that time will God pour out his spirit upon Israel. Only at that time. That we call them the Armageddon folks who believe that the Gog-Magog war is, is at the end of the tribulation uh, period. And so the Holy Spirit will come then. They do so because of Zechariah chapter 12, verses 9 and, and 10. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. When will that be? Well, obviously, is when the Lord comes into the Mount of Olives, and when he marches through the Eastern Gate and goes into the city of Jerusalem and sits on the throne of David, everything actually is going to change. In fact, when you read the whole passage in, in Zechariah, 13, 12, 13, and 14 uh, chapters, you find that even the landscape changes before their eyes. This valley that is between the, the um, Mount of Olives and the wall of the city, that valley will disappear. It will open up. The, the, the scripture is saying this, so things are going to change in a, in a very, very rapid way. But here's another question. So this is now the Holy Spirit being poured out upon Israel at the end of the tribulation. Here's the question. You got to listen and you got to be sharp, okay, because I might point at one of you. No, I'm just kidding. I won't do that. It's not too embarrassing. That was just to wake you up. Okay. On the day of Pentecost, when we read in Acts chapter 2, upon those who would be saved, does the Lord say that he will pour out his spirit? <laughs> yeah, it does. It says that. Upon those who will be saved, God is going to pour out his spirit. The answer is yes. So if you did one of these, you got an A. Peter quoted from the prophet Joel in Acts chapter 2 that a multitude of Gentiles would get saved and Israel was going to get saved. As a matter of fact, let's go to Joel chapter 2. The prophet Joel, this is after Ezekiel, so go to your right in your Bible. And you'll find Joel. It's right before Amos, right after Hosea. So Daniel, Hosea, and Joel. 
I say Joel, Yoel in the Hebrew, because if I said Joel, some of you might say the book of Joe, J-O-E. No, it's J-O-E-L, okay? Verse 28 of chapter 2. And listen carefully to what the prophecy is. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. You see that? Okay, that's, that's important. All flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. That's a little more specific, being, of course, God's people. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the, in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be darkened, uh, shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord. Do you notice that? Whosoever? That whosoever means whosoever. Not just Jew. Jew and Gentile. Whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. That's a just another word for being saved, to be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Now, we should know that it was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Peter actually quoted Joel, Joel, verse 14 of Acts chapter 2. Let me read what he said. First in verse 14, it says, Peter standing up with the eleven lifted up his voice. By the way, uh, the 11, of course, if you included Matthias instead of Judas Iscariot. But Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judea, and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken as you suppose, because of what had happened just previous to that, which is that the Holy Spirit had gone through that upper room and they had tongues of fire over them that had come from the Holy Spirit of God, the baptism that Jesus promised them would come. And they began to speak with other tongues. And people outside of this upper room were listening and they were saying, hey, they're praising God in my language from whatever region they were from. And he says, these are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. Now get verse 16. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is that. I love that little phrase. This is that. This is what that says. This is happening because of that which was said. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see uh, shall dream dreams. And notice he's, he kind of changes the order. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I'll pour out these uh, in these days, uh, in those days of, uh, of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And then he says, and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. That, you know, that's yet to come, of course. That, that didn't happen then. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. But he has to get through all of that prophecy so he can say what it says in verse 21. 
to match what it says in verse 32 in Joel chapter 2, and that is, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now let me ask this question. A lot of questions tonight to kind of tie all this together. Was it everything Joel predicted? No, of course not. Because part of the prophecy talks about that blood and the fire and the pillars of smoke that, that will happen in the latter days. The sun being darkened and the moon turning into blood, that would be before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. The day of the Lord again is what? The tribulation period. But here's another question that we need to ponder. Now, now you got to be sharp on this one, okay? You guys ready? Here's the question. Have a lot of people gotten saved between Acts chapter 2 and today? That's an easy question. Have a lot of people been saved between Acts chapter 2 and today? Yes, of course. And all of them, all of them needed the work of the Holy Spirit to be saved. All of them. Not one of them was saved by their own power, by their own might, by their own intellect, by their own wisdom, by their own education. Not one of them was saved without the Holy Spirit. All of them needed the work of the Holy Spirit to be saved. Not one of them could save themselves. And so to hold the position that the Holy Spirit is only poured out at the end of the tribulation period is to ignore what the Holy Spirit has been doing during the whole period known as the last days. Or better yet, the church age. Now I've asked this question before in other studies, but the question is when did the last days begin? When did the last days begin? 1960? 1948, 1971, might have, that's when I graduated from high school. Last days begin then? No. Go back to Acts 2. Are you still there, Acts 2? If you're still at Acts 2, you get another A, A plus. Look back at verse 16. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, verse 17, and it shall come to pass when? In the last days. And what did he say? This event of the Holy Spirit coming upon us, this event has come to pass in the last days. The last days began when the church received the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? I will pour out my spirit in my, uh, on, on, upon all flesh. And so, to summarize all of that, there is no hindrance, listen, there is no hindrance to the understanding that the Holy Spirit can be poured out at any time other than at the end of the tribulation period. So it doesn't have to be just at the end of the, at the, end of the period to, to substantiate that the Gog-Magog war is only at the end and not at the beginning. So here's the main question that we have for the evening. 
What then is the timing of the Gog-Magog invasion? Well, no specific times here. But it is important to note that the latter years or the last days in the Hebrew Scriptures are terms that refer to a time leading up to the return of Messiah on earth, preceded by a terrible time known as the Day of the Lord, which, as again I said earlier, is the Great Tribulation period. But this is what we need to find as interesting about all of this. And that is that no invasion as described here in Ezekiel 38 and 39, no invasion in all of the world, no invasion has ever taken place in human history like, this, like the one described in Ezekiel 38, 39. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened. Now, Ezekiel 38, verse 8, go back a page again. It requires the nation of Israel to be restored. And I want you to realize that that could not have happened before 1948 of the modern age. Listen again to verse 8. After many days thou shalt be visited. In the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword, and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste. But it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. This verse also necessitates Israel to be in possession of the mountains of Israel, which they did not have before 1948, and they didn't have, actually, until 1967 in the Six-Day War, the June uh, 1967 war. That's called the Six-Day War. They didn't have the mountains of Israel. They didn't have the Golan Heights until 1967. They didn't have the mountains east of Jerusalem until 1967. And they didn't even have Jerusalem until 1967. So realize that this prophecy was spoken 2,500 years ago. And key prophecies of that prophecy 2,500 years ago were fulfilled in 1948 and in 1967. That's just two dates, but significant. Some of us remember the Six-Day War. And even though I was in high school then, it, it was, I, I was glued to the TV. I was glued to the TV to see what was happening in Israel. It, it was a, an amazing historical event because God's hand was upon the Israeli defense forces that went in to take Jerusalem. The fights. When you go to Israel and you, you, go, you go to the gates where the, some of the heavier fighting was, you still see the, the 50 caliber bullets in the you know, holes in the wall. I mean, it's amazing what was fought and how it was fought for. So another question. When does Israel dwell safe, safely or, or at least securely? Well, this again is going to help us to try to determine the timing of this event 
So go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Do you all have a, I'm going to give you all a minute to find that, that, uh, that verse. I'll, I'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. You all stay in your seats. Okay, sorry. I was looking for something that I thought was over there, but I bet you it's over here, but I'm not going to go look over there. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 3. But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. I already mentioned last time that the burning of weapons for fuel and the burying of bodies for seven months could not take place either in the middle of the tribulation period or at the end of the tribulation period. So, so when does this invasion of Ezekiel 38-39 take place? If it isn't in the middle and if it isn't at the end. Because they, they, Israel, is going to bear, Israel is going to burn weapons for fuel for seven years. If it was at the middle of the tribulation period, then we're told that they're supposed to flee out of Jerusalem and go away because of, of the Antichrist. So that's not going to happen. It's not, uh, the burying of bodies uh, cannot happen at the end of the tribulation period because Jesus comes at the end of the tribulation period and establishes his kingdom. Everything changes, as I said, when Jesus comes. So there won't be any need for the cleansing of the land then. So when does the invasion of Ezekiel 38-39 take place? Well, well, this is opinion, because again, it hasn't happened yet, but it, it's a good opinion based upon what we've seen in the scriptures. And that is that it happens before the tribulation period. It happens before the tribulation. Or, or, consider this question. If the rapture of the church, the snatching away of the body of Christ, the snatching away of the bride of Christ, the snatching away of the church, happens tonight, I hope, right? Don't we all hope that Jesus will come and take us home? Paul said, comfort one another with these words. He's, you know, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him to be with the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. I could comfort one another with these things. I want you all to be comforted. Get right with Jesus tonight if you haven't, because if you do, then you can be comforted with all the rest of us. But here's the thing. If the rapture of the church happens tonight, is there any verse or passage of Scripture that indicates the tribulation begins immediately. No, not really. There isn't. There isn't. It will not begin immediately. It doesn't say that it will begin immediately. It could be days. It could be months. It could be even a few years 
but not many years, if at all. The invasion itself could take place between the rapture and the start of the tribulation period. So that's just an, an, an option, but again, one that is that can be substantiated at least in, in the way that we have approached and studied the scripture. Bible teacher and prophecy researcher David Hawking, who uh, I know and he is actually was here many years ago with us, he has an interesting perspective about this. He says it would be ideal if the Gog-Magog invasion would actually take place three and a half years before the tribulation starts. And that would solve the dilemma of Israel burning of weapons for seven years. They would have a measure of security in the land given to them by the Antichrist, who will also restore their sacrificial system and bring peace to the Middle East. But remember, it will be a false peace. It will be a false peace. So think about that. Start three and a half years before the tribulation period. Maybe the rapture's already happened. And then they burn weapons for fuel for seven years. So it gets to the point where Antichrist now gives them the temple and they give, give the sacrifice. They go three and a half years and then what happens? In the middle of the tribulation period, then Antichrist reveals himself as one who wants to be worshiped in the temple, and he desecrates the temple just as Daniel said would happen. So it was a false peace to begin with. There will be a rebuilt temple. We know that because the scripture continues to talk about it. But those building it won't wait for the Messiah. In fact, today, there is, a, there is an institute in Israel, right in the middle of uh, the Jewish quarter of, of, uh, in Jerusalem, the old city. It's called the Temple Institute. And these are Jews who, who really believe that very soon they're going to be allowed to build the temple on the Temple Mount. I'm going to talk about this when I get back from all my trips. <laughs> Uh, we're going to talk about it in, from chapter 40 on. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the things going on with the temple today. But uh, they, they believe that they're going to build a temple so, that, so as to receive Messiah. We're going to build a temple so Messiah can come to it. The truth is, there will be a Messiah that will come to it, but it will be the false Messiah it will be the Antichrist. Listen to Daniel chapter 9:27, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. That one week is a week of years. That's the seven year period. And in the midst of the week, three and a half years, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for, overspreading, for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate, which means in a word, he's going to go in and desecrate the temple, proclaim himself to be God, and many people will worship him as God. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, an apostasia, an apostasy. And that man of sin is be revealed, the son of perdition. That's the Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God 
or that is worshiped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, and there's the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's the desolation, the, the abomination of desolation. And then in Revelation 13, now I know I'm just throwing these threads out there, but this is just to connect it all together to say that this is what's going to happen in those seven years. Verses 6 through 8, he, And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I would encourage you, make sure your name is written in the book of life. Make sure that you have the humble confidence in knowing that if the Lord were to come today, that you would be taken home. Make sure you have that assurance. But let me leave you with an encouraging word from 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 6 through 10. Paul says in one of the strongest letters that he wrote concerning prophetic issues. He said, therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith, and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us to wrath. Everything about the tribulation period from the first year through the seventh year is all about wrath. It's all about judgment. God has not appointed us, he says, to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Listen, the cross is not only important to save us, it is also important to deliver us. It is important to deliver us into the kingdom of God, who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, whether we're alive when he comes or we're asleep or dead when he comes, we should live together with him. That, that takes us right back to 1 Thessalonians 4 when he says, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air and never to be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. So what we've been doing here tonight is, is I hope and pray has been that which is a comfort to you in spite of all of the things that we've been dealing with and the things that we've been seeing. I was telling someone not long ago that if, if I were to really just open up a, a few other doors of, of information of things that are going on in the world today, I, I have mentioned some of them like transhumanism, technocracy, uh, things that are happening today, not only in the world of finance, but they're happening in the world of science. Uh, superhuman, uh, 
they're testing the, the genes of, of animals and, and humans together to, to make a superhuman athlete or a superhuman soldier or whatever. They're happening today. This is not science fiction. Uh, if I were to say that, I mean, you know, we, we think we were watching the Twilight Zone. Of course, the majority of you don't even know what that is. Well, I'm not. But those of you who remember, <laughs> the Twilight Zone or Outer Limits or something like that. I don't know. Maybe one day I'm going to say, you know what? Star Trek is not all that, all that uh, science fiction. I mean, it's, look, at what, look, at, look, at the, look at the technology that we have today. I mean, they had these things that they'd open up and talk to people. What do we do? We open up and talk to people. The problem is when we're talking to people while we're driving, man, you know. We're getting people in bad shape out there. We have all this technology, folks, and, and, and yet how many people know Jesus Christ? <laughs> That's sad. So let's get busy. Let's be watchmen. And let's be light. And let's be salt. Amen?